0: Evening. Been out fighting the devil today. I'm grateful to be saved. I shudder to think where I would be outside of Christ and his mercy. And uh, we might be a little weary, a little battle sore, but man, what a, what a privilege it is to be in the house of God, to be saved people today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 18 a message I've titled, A Blessed Gathering, Matthew 18, Can look at a few verses, verse 18 to 20. I'll read, pray, and then I'll preach. Hear now the word of God. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Let's pray. More my Father, I believe in the Son of God, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the grave that I have the Spirit of God, that we have the Spirit of God today, that we are seated in heavenly places, Lord God, that we are adopted as your children because of him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that I have the opportunity to just put the name of Jesus on my lips and that your people might hear his name and hear from you. God, would you help us? Would you help us today? All the distractions and all the stuff that we've we've been focused on today and we come here and we're a bit tired. Would your spirit minister to us and help us, please? Help me. Help me to minister to these blessed people. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we can read a scripture. We can memorise it. And what we'll often do is we, we won't memorise the context that it's from. And I must admit, uh, I've done that with verse 20 in our text today. There was a time where my family and I, we had a, a prayer meeting every Friday night. And I'm sure every Friday night I prayed that scripture. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so we can, we can do that. We can memorise that scripture, but we can sometimes forget where it's been extracted from. And so I was, I was just considering um, that passage recently and I was viewing it in light of the context that it comes out of. And I was gaining a greater appreciation of those verses. And I guess this is what I just wanted to share with you guys tonight. So what I'd like to do, And I hope the the exegetical police aren't here because you'll arrest me. But I'm not going to unpack the entire chapter. I've got 20 minutes, pastor tells me. Um, I I can't unpack this whole chapter. So what I'd like to do is maybe just fly over the chapter, look at a few different things that, that are in that chapter, and then spiral down to our text, particularly verse 20 at the end, and make some application for you. So let's do that. Let's look at this chapter. So the chapter begins with what i think is a pretty audacious question verse 1 who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven you might think that's an arrogant question i i believe that that is a, a great question and what i want to submit to you tonight is that the answer to that question isn't just contained in those first few verses It's in the whole of this chapter that this question is pointed at. And so thinking thinking of this question, realising that it's a great question, it's, it's a great question because it talks about what is a successful Christian? Is that okay for us to ask that? How do we value a great life in the kingdom of God? I guess more specifically for us corporately, how do we gauge the spiritual power and the vitality of a local church? How do we measure the local church's greatness? That's an excellent question. So let's look. Let's look at a few things. In verse 3 and 4, Jesus says this He says, And and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is a mark of greatness in the kingdom of God. Now this is the exact opposite to the world, isn't it? Well, that fight and strive and wrestle with one another for position. But that is not the case in the kingdom of God. To be a child is to... See ourselves in a humble position. Children at their best draw their identity from their parent. Not based upon what they have done, but they find their identity in that parent. Humility is minimising position and status and even your rights that another may increase. Think about John the Baptist. He said those famous words, I must decrease, that he must increase. John was willing to step out of the limelight limelight, so that the ministry and preeminence of Christ could be elevated, that he would receive the fame. It's this sort of humility that should characterize us in the church, and this really is the the mark of greatness. I'm a, a, a history buff, I love history. And uh, my, my son, his middle name is Whitfield. I'm a street preacher. I, I, I really look up to, to George Whitfield as a great man of God, man, a, a great open-air preacher. And there was a time in the, the life of George Whitfield and his contemporary, John Wesley, the great awakening and, and thousands and tens of thousands of people were being saved in England and in the colonies of America. And there was this amazing movement of God, the Methodist movement. George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, good friends, had significant differences in their soteriology, their views of salvation. And while they were good friends, contemporaries, they, they weren't striving against each other. It was their fanboys that had a real issue and began to really to fight and to strive against one another. And when I think of humility, I, I love the story of Whitfield, where there was this time in this, in this amazing movement of God without saying, listen, we're going to make you the big guy, not this guy over here, where George Whitfield said, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to get in the way of God. John Wesley is the man. I'm going to. I'm going to step down. I'm going to lower myself, and I'm going to allow him to be elevated. This is the sort of humility that we need to model in our lives. It's a measure of greatness. Our text in verses eight to ten speaks of personal accountability for sin, and we know we know this. These verses, well, this is a radical statement from Jesus. Therefore, verse 8, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having... Two eyes to be cast into hell fire. This is a radical sermon by Jesus. Hey, if you're in sin, if you're, this is causing you to sin. It's like, chop it off, man. Chop it off. This is not saying, hey, if you're in sin, what you need to do, you need to go up to that high mountain and just gaze at your navel. And just pray to God, oh God, would you, would you take that sin from me? This is personal accountability for our sin. This is not some mystical incantation that God has to do what we will not do. That we have been given power over our sin. Paul echoes the same sentence. This is one of my favourite statements in the New Testament because I just think it's so, it's so practical. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul says this, Let him that stole, just pray about it, man, just pray about it, steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, in my vernacular, stop nicking stuff, don't be a bozo, Get a job and be generous with what you earn. Practical. Yep. Personal accountability. A mark of greatness. We fly over verses 11 and 14. If you're in the NIV, you're going to be confused now because verse 11 just isn't in your Bible. Verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, If a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray. Doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and go into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Take note here, even so. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. It's God saying here. He's saying there is an amazing love that is provided towards those that are outside of Christ. And today on this earth, blasphemers, adulterers, sinful people with jobs and health care and a government that won't kill them. And all the blessings, as, as Christ said, it rains on the just and the unjust. God's love to reach out to those broken people and to restore them and what Jesus is saying, he is saying, do you consider this? If God would be this way towards those that are outside of his family, what is his intention towards you? What is his love towards you? And we move to, this is a difficult few verses and... You know verses 15 to 17, they talk about church discipline, don't they? And I'm, I don't know if this would, I wouldn't want to preach this as my sermon. I'm bold, not crazy. But it talks about the gravity of broken, fractured relationships in the church. To the extent where Christ says, There's a point in the fracture of that relationship, but you just, it, that member needs to be cut off. It's like gangrene, if you know anything about that. It's a, a terrible thing that when a member of your body is infected with gangrene, to preserve the rest of that body. It needs to be chopped off. This is the gravity that God highlights to us about broken relationships within the church. This is the love and the care that God has for us, that he wants us to be healthy. He wants the church to have vitality, to prosper, and he's willing to cut off that which would hinder those things. We skip past our verses in, in verse 18, 19 and 20. What's the rest of the chapter about? Another question. question now is about forgiveness. And Jesus gives this radical parable and the parable itself, and you, you probably know the parable. It's a parable of this man that has a debt to a sovereign and he can't pay it and so he he begs for mercy and the sovereign forgives his debt and then this same person goes out and there's a guy that has like this tiny little debt that he owes him and this guy's like man you're gone you're going to jail you owe me sucker the parable is meant to make us go that makes me angry That guy makes me angry. It's to shock us of how scandalous it is within the church. Here we are, people that have offended and sinned against God so frequently in our lives. Just think about this. You sin three times a day. Do you reckon this could be a possibility for people? Could this be a possibility for you and I? Yep. That's a thousand sins in a year. If you live 70 years, that's 70,000 indictments against you. And then there's this guy in the church and he, he just said something. He, step, he stepped on your toe. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't praise your new haircut. Nobody praised my haircut. That's fine. And you're going to be like, man, you're going down, sucker. That should be scandalous to us. That should shock us. We should be a people that are characterized by forgiveness. And so why are we touching on these things? Why, are we, why am I glancing over all of these things? Where is our text in all of this? It's right in the center of all of these Verses about relationships, problems, the way that we deal with this as a people. And I, I, I submit to you that they are not placed haphazardly here in the middle of all of this. The question of success in the kingdom and those verses that are talking about here's your authority Here's here's the power that's being given to you is contingent on the unity of the church. Is unity more than an absence of conflict? Of course it is. Of course it is. Is it more than reconciliation, a fractured relationship? Is it more than just proximity that we're here? Is this unity? Unity is more than that. Uh, Positively, it's a... It's a oneness of purpose and belief and desire. I mean, consider the the book of Acts. Turn, if you will, to Acts 2 46. This is the postscript on that great sermon by Peter. He stands on the day of Pentecost, he preaches with power, and thousands of people are saved. I love this. It says, Acts 2.46, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Oh, that's a powerful scripture. And gladness here speaks of an overwhelming, exceeding joy. A oneness in their affections, their devotion, their purpose. Singleness speaks also of simplicity. They weren't being diverted by stuff that might have driven divides between them. There, there was a joy in the simple presence and unity of those people. It was a beautiful thing. I wonder when the last time we, we've approached somebody in the church and we said, Brother... When I'm with you, I just feel good, man. I just feel good. You, you give me joy to be here with me. I, I love you and you give me joy to be with you. When's the last time we have appreciated one another that way? And I know, I, I've played this card. You say, well, the book of Acts, right? Dude, if I was living back then... I would have been so holy. I'd be glowing and floating all at the same time. You think about that. The first century church, we have this kind of mystical, utopian view of that church, of that culture, as if it was easy. You think about how impossible the unity of that church was. The deep divides in culture. Of race. The scandal of having rich people and poor people in the same place, loving on one another, serving one another. <laughs> the church is impossible. It's impossible. Tacitus, the Roman historian who was no fan of Christianity, he said this he said he was not a believer, not even close to a believer. Do you know how he described that church? He said they had this unwavering, the the cult, the Christian sect, has this unwavering devotion to this teacher Jesus and this unusual affection to each other. People see us. Is that what they say about us? These people... They're weird, but, man, you should see the the way that they love one another, the unity that they have. We need to pursue unity at all costs. This needs to be our goal as a church. Uh, I remember, and some of you know my backstory, Um, there was a time where I was leading a number of people and... I just felt completely overwhelmed by this. I didn't plan this. Um, it just kind of happened. And I really needed, I had, I had pastors who were like my peers, but I needed somebody that was like older in the ministry, a mentor, an older man who's been in, in the ministry for a long time just to come and mentor me. And I was praying. And, and finally, a friend of our family in Africa, a guy that planted a lot of churches, he, he's known our family for a long time, He kind of took me under his wing. And I remember the first time I sat down with him, I'm thinking, man, this, this is cool. This guy's like super experienced. He's a, he's a godly, godly man. He's done a lot of things in the ministry. He, he trains pastors. And I was sitting down with him and he, I'm thinking, man, he's going to teach me about, you know, I need help with counselling people. I've got to help people. Like maybe he's going to help me preach. And you guys can see that I need help preaching. Um, he's going to teach me about the deep things of prayer. And he started to talk about my marriage. And I remember thinking, why is he talking about my marriage? Has my wife said something to him? Why is he talking about this? And he was saying things like, the goal is that this single Jeff and this single Sandrin would, would die and there would be Be this oneness in you guys. And he said, you know, so many marriages are really just two single people walking parallel. They're on two tracks, but they're not on one track. And he said, before you go and do that out there, you need to get this. It was, man, it was life-changing advice. And I thought I had a great marriage. And I tell you that not because it's some, um, you know, I'm giving you some weird marriage confession, um, but I tell you that because that is our, that should be our goal. We are engaged in many different things, aren't we? <laughs> before we focus out there, before we focus out there, we need to, we need to have this, and when we have this, then we have the power of God then we have the favour of God, then we have the special presence of God. And that pastor said to me, whatever causes disunity in your marriage, immediately red flag. You must avoid this. Your goal is oneness with your wife and you will never minister that way until you have this. That's good advice for us. That is good advice for us. This will bring the power of God in our church. This will draw down that special presence of Christ that he mentions in our text. Let us pursue this above all else. I want people, when they visit this place, not to say, oh, they, they had great music. And we do. We have great music, we have great preachers, we have great programs. But don't we want people to come here and they go, I don't understand it. I mean, the music's nice and the preaching is good and the programs are nice and the building looks nice. But I just, I sense, I sense that God is in that place. And I want to be there with those people because God is there. Let that be our goal. Real unity, a special presence of God and a blessed gathering in Jesus' name. The psalmist said this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment Upon the head that ran down upon the beard. Even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the Jew of Hermon and as the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Even life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? God, would you help us? Let us be people that are bound in heart and soul by the precious blood of Christ. Let us pursue that with all of our strength, God, that we would love one another. Oh, God, let it be an amazing testimony to this world. Father, I thank you. I thank you that any of this is even possible only because of Jesus. Oh, let it all be for his fame. Oh, God, for the greatness of his name and for the joy, the peace of your people today. Jesus, name.